If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 4 and read to the end of the chapter, verse 25. The Word of God says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he planted the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed out of the whole land of Havilah and, there, and where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. And it is the one that flowed around the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its parts with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. In the 21st century, we suffer from a sin that I like to call the sin of modernity. What that means is we have somehow come to believe that we, as as people living in our time, have arrived that we know all there is to know, and that everyone who comes before us was wrong about everything, and that we are the ones who, in our sophisticated minds and all of these things, we've just got everything figured out. And I think many of us see how, that, how ridiculous at times that perspective can be, but as Christians, we often treat the Old Testament this way. 
particularly these passages in the book of Genesis, we often ask ourselves, what could we learn from a book like Genesis that was written thousands of years ago? How could it ever be relevant to us? We must recognize that the book of Genesis, though, isn't a collection of myths or even just familiar stories, but rather verse 4 tells us that we are offered an introduction here that we are reading an account that the, the Hebrew here is a, a teledote, a historical genealogy, a biography of the beginning of the world. Look at verse 4. These are the generations, the account, the biography, the, the historical retelling of these things of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens in the earth. And this word here for generations is used 13 times in the book of Genesis. It almost works as a marker. You'll see it to kind of introduce a new section of the book as it goes through as it moves through what we what we find out to be thousands of years of human history. And behind this, our author Moses, behind what he's writing here, God speaks. God, this is God's word. We recognize as Christians that ultimately God's word is authored, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, by one author, the Holy Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit wrote all of these books and inspired these authors. And through this account, written thousands of years ago, God wants to speak to us. And now some come to Genesis chapter 2 and they think that this is a contradiction from what we saw last week in Genesis chapter 1. They go, well, look, Genesis chapter 1 says God made the world in, in six days and he made the man. And then we see this seemingly different creation account here in chapter 2. But we don't get here contradictory accounts, but rather chapter 2 backs up and telescopes in and expands on that sixth day. Moses here has a concern, particularly with the creation of man. Genesis 1 was an answer to the question of how did everything that is get here? In Genesis 2, he telescopes in and says, let's just chat about the creation of man now. Let's chat about humankind. And in Genesis 2, that's exactly what we see, the creation of humanity. And in its creation, I think we see what defines humankind and why we exist. I think this chapter is so foundational that we seek to answer the question in this sermon from Genesis 2. It answers the question for us, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? And I can't think of any deeper, more profoundly impactful question to have an answer to than that. And in this passage, we see six realities that define what makes us human. If you have your notes, you can follow along here. First, humanity is created in God's image. Humanity is created in God's image. Before we even dive into chapter 2, I think we should back up and consider what chapter 1 said. Look, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said... Let us make man, man here being humanity, mankind, in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Here we consider that God brings forth on the sixth day land animals to fill the earth 
and he breaks the pattern when he makes man. If you remember Genesis 1, it's God speaks and there was. But here we see verse 26 of Genesis 1. It says, let us make man. Something different is happening here. We saw last week, this is the triune God, one God in three persons, creating out of himself mankind. But we also should notice that this is the last thing that God created. That's significant. That this is the pinnacle, the crescendo, the peak of the mountain of creation, that we are not like the rest of the creatures God made. We're different. And third, we should notice that all of God's creation, out of all of it, he, he says that we as humankind bear his image and his likeness. And to bear his image and his likeness is simply to bear a resemblance to him. To, to be something that's like him. Something that God can declare to the world here, this is what I'm like. Though God is spirit, he has created material beings, that's us, to reflect him and to tell the world what he's like. And that should be significant because the sun and the moon shine with a bright light. The oceans roar and the mountains have grandeur, but none of those are God's image. All the cool animals in the world, the new puppy that we have at home, that isn't God's image. You are. You are. And in Psalm chapter 8, David reflects on this incredible reality. And look what he says, Psalm chapter 8. You'll see this on the screen. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. What an incredible reality that we are made in the image of God. But what specifically does this mean? You might be asking, what, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What actually makes us different from the animals? What makes us different from the rest of creation? And I think it comes down to a unique identity and unique responsibility. A unique call in our vertical relationship with God and a unique horizontal rulership over creation. Let's consider first our identity as the image of God, our, our vertical relationship with God. To bear the image of God was to be in a unique relationship with God that the rest of creation doesn't have. First, it tells us that Adam bore, as I said before, the family resemblance. Consider Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3. This is just a few pages over from where you are. And it tells us that when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image and named him Seth. So to bear God's image was for Adam in some sense to be, a, yes, like God, but also to be a son of God, to share a unique bond and relationship. The way that your children would share a bond with you as their parents, Adam shared that bond with his creator. He looked like his father, maybe not physically, but in his knowledge and holiness. And to be a son of the creator of the universe was to be king over that creation. Consider again how Psalm chapter 8 said that man has been crowned with glory and honor. 
Again, verse 4 of chapter 2 is so significant, we're tempted to miss something that's happening there. Not only does it introduce chapters 2 to 5, but God introduces himself in a very interesting way. Look again, chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, or the earth and the heavens. Your Bible probably has that term Lord in all caps in your Bible, or at least mine does. Many of them should, and that tells us that, that here they are using the personal name for God. Yahweh, the name that was spoken out of the burning bush to Moses for God to say, here I am. There was a personal covenant commitment relationship of God to Adam here to say, here I am. God dwelt with man in a perfect relationship, a perfect Sabbath day in covenant with him. This is part of what it meant for Adam to be a son of God, to be the image of God. But to be made in the image of God wasn't just about who Adam was as as a son of God and in relationship with him, but it also told us about what Adam does. So it wasn't just about who Adam is, but about what Adam does. So we think not just his identity of his vertical relationship to God, that he's a son, but also consider his responsibility, his and ours by extension, our horizontal rulership over creation. Look again at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 28 picks this up well. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the earth, That is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. Do you see it? Over and over it says, Adam, mankind, you have dominion. You're to subdue. You're to rule over creation. It's important to notice here what Adam is actually put in control over. He isn't put in control over anything created in days one to four. It doesn't say have dominion over the stars, over the heavens, even over the seas, but rather he was to have dominion over every living creature, whether it flew in the sky, swam in the sea, or on the land, that that of the creatures, despite what what animal planet might tell you, mankind is the king of the animal kingdom. At least we were created to be the king of the animal kingdom. One of the clearest ways I think we can see this is we drove here. No other animals are driving around today. Notice also this wasn't something Adam declared for himself. This wasn't Adam going, well, I'm just going to do this and do this in my own power and domineer over all things. No, this was something God called him to. This was something God gave to him and to us that it was a responsibility, a stewardship, a calling put upon God's creation. Rule over the earth. Subdue it, meaning bring it under your control, not to serve your personal ends, but to serve God's ends of filling the earth and multiplying his glory everywhere. See, Adam, this wasn't just for Adam alone. This wasn't, hey, 
take dominion so that you can make hamburgers for your own good. <laughs> he said, do this, have dominion over these things so that you can glorify me with it. So that even in your enjoying of the creation, we bring glory to God. What a purpose to be human in the purest sense is to be made in the image and likeness of God. It is to live with God in covenant relationship and to rule over his creation well. And that's just the background of Genesis 2. Now when we dive into Genesis 2, words hold so much more. He tells us second. That humanity is created as embodied souls. Might take you a second to write that down, but an embodied soul. Notice with me verse 5 of chapter 2. So we're back in Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up over the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Before the garden came, mankind came. Before he even tells us in verse 10 onward about the beauty of the creation, there was no plant, no bush, no rain, but God was working. And there was mist in the midst of this wasteland, right? Mist was coming up. It doesn't watering the land. God was hovering over this void and empty land. And then he took some dirt and he made mankind. And he made, particularly man, he made Adam. And what's important for us to see here is what he's telling us about who we are. First, it tells us, and this might come as a shock to some of us, but that we are made of matter. <laughs> We're stuff. You are a physical being. Everybody can just grab their hands, right? You're sitting on a chair. You know you're made of stuff. But it also tells you that you're more than stuff. You're more than just stuff. Look at verse 7 again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So matter wasn't enough that there's an immaterial part of us, call it a spirit, call it a soul, whatever you want to call it. But so many of us live as if there's only one of those. So many of us live as if we're only material, or some of us live as if we're only immaterial. And this is a correction to both. Some of us live like all we have is our bodies, and we neglect our souls. And I think this pandemic is a perfect reminder for us of that ultimately we can, we can, yes, take care of our bodies, but we should not neglect our souls. That we can only take care of our bodies to so, to so far. Hear me, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of this virus, especially for those who are vulnerable, but let me tell you something. Your body is going to get sick one day. Everybody here... You can wear a mask the rest of your life, hand sanitize every moment, and never leave your house, and somehow sickness will find its way into your house, and you will get sick. Old age will find your body. That's right. That's right. No workout, no fad diet, not even going on keto is going to keep you from aging. Amen? All these weird fad diets everybody's doing. I'm like, man, if I, don't, if I can't eat bread, there's just no point in the whole thing, right? 
And even beyond that, let me, let me hear this. You're going you're gonna to die one day. You're going to die one day. You're going to go in the ground and you're going to return, the Bible says, to where you came from. Adam came from dust and to dust we will return. Ecclesiastes 12 is a humbling reminder where Solomon reflects on this. And look what he says. In Ecclesiastes 12, he says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the streets are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and the one rises up at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song are brought low and they're afraid also of what is high and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desires fail because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. He says, life's just going to keep on going. And he continues, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the foundation or the wheel broken of the cistern and the dust returns to earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. This is one day you're going to be put in the ground and life's just going to continue on without you. That's a very dark, morbid thought this Sunday morning, but it's necessary for us to realize that you are physical and one day everything physical in this world is going to leave you. You can't put the U-Haul behind the hearse, right? You cannot take it all with you. And even though our bodies are destined to go in the grave, it tells us our souls will go to be with God, and we've got a judgment to face, don't we? The Bible says that when we die, to be at home, to be away from the body, is to be in the presence of the Lord, and that one day we will all have to stand before God and give an account of our life. What is that? What, what feeling does that well up in you? To know you're going to be standing there, and you ain't going to be standing there, being able to go, well, I mean, do you know who my parents are? Well, do you know, you know my granddaddy's a preacher, so I got the card to come in, right? Or going, well, I was baptized, but it never really meant anything to me. Or even going, well, I, I, God, you just didn't give me enough reasons to believe in you. <laughs> Friends, you will give an account for your life. And the Bible says that the only way to, to find peace on that day and to, be, and to hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant, and not to enter into judgment is to flee to Jesus, who is the only hope for our souls before God when we will stand before him in all of eternity. So if you are not a Christian this morning, this is a call for you to do so, to even right where you are, cry out to God and go, help me, save me. I have to stand before a perfect, holy God one day and give an account for my life, and I can't stand on my own and flee to Jesus who has died, been buried, and risen again so that we could have new and everlasting life. We care about our souls, but, friends, we must not simply care about our souls and let our bodies fall apart. God gave you a stewardship with them. Think of all you are able to do because you have a body. 
I, I went down a list of things, and I said, there's not really much I can do without a body, right? <laughs> like, that's really everything, right? And yet, why do we treat our bodies in such a throwaway way? You will never, Christian, serve God as you ought if you can't use your bodies to do what he says to do. Some Christians over-spiritualize and go, well, I'm just going to care about my soul, but then who cares what happens with the rest of this? No, I think you should try to care for both as well as you can. To serve him with all that you have. God created mankind with both body and soul. A soul that will live forever. And a body that though it may decay, the Bible promises a resurrection of the dead. And a reuniting of body and soul in the future. That God's going to raise our bodies and he says they're going to be glorious. And that this is one of the reasons we should value and be mindful of both our bodies and souls. We are embodied souls. Humanity is created in God's image. We're created as embodied souls. Third, humanity is created with gender. With gender. We saw this in Genesis chapter 1, didn't we? Look, at, look again with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And Genesis 2 brings this out too. After going into more detail about the location and the geography of the garden and giving instructions to the man, and we'll look at some of those in a moment, God notices that something was not good in his creation. He has said throughout Genesis 1, right, he creates and it was good. Creates and it was good. On the sixth day, he finishes and says, it was very good. And the first thing that was not good in God's world was a lonely man. The first thing that was not good in God's world was a man all by himself. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. If there's anything that's clear there from this text is that men and women are different. Men and women are different. That's right. I appreciate that. Anybody who's been around men and women too long kind of know that. It's almost self-evident in some ways. And yet the Bible brings this out as well. And I recognize that in our world, some of what I'm going to say might be a little controversial and might would maybe get me canceled by some folks. But catch this here. To be male and female is not just something you identify with or that you can trade or even truly change, no matter how great a surgery you may get, God created the world and created you with a particular gender, male or female. 
It's clear. It's in the text. Genesis 2 gets into the how of doing this. Nothing in creation was able to satisfy the man. No matter how cute the puppy might have been, none of the cows, none of the ducks, none of anything out there, none of the other critters that were around, nothing could fix his loneliness. And so God made woman out of a surgery. Basically, he, he creates her out of the man, and he gives her to the man, and the, the text says, as a helper, as a helper. And God himself actually refers to himself throughout the Bible as a helper, and that it's telling us that men and women were created to complement one another, a helper fit for him. To be a helper, ladies, hear me, is not to be less than. Just think about the fact that the woman is made from the rib or the side bone of the man. Commentator Matthew Henry, who's kind of a big deal, you can go find a lot of his commentaries online. He said this, The woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arms to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That man, Adam, was called to lead, to love, and to pursue his helper, and he gave her a helper, and he gave him a helper to be led, loved, and to help him. Do you see the compliment that's here in the text? And this can look so many different ways in our life. And notice that Adam, after his surgery, wakes up. And, see his, and sees his wife there and says, wow. And just proof that even from the beginning that ladies love musicians, Adam breaks into song and wins her heart, doesn't he? Look what he says. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We were created with gender. But the text goes on. Humanity is created to be relational. To be relational. This is point four. Verse 24 and 25 highlight one of the relationships that God particularly blesses, marriage. But I want you to know, friends, this goes outside of and beyond just marriage. We're created to have relationships with our children, to have relationships with friends, I think so often as, as men, we struggle to have real friendships with other guys. And the, and the Bible would call us not to, to, yes, be close with our wives and to, be, and to have us be one with them, but also have friends with other guys. That's part of the reason we have a men's group that's here on Wednesday night. We think this is important, right? That men be together. And so this text encompasses us being relational, but he focuses in on... What is one of the primary relationships that most men are going to have, which is their relationship with their wife. And look what he says, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As if Genesis 2 wasn't controversial enough, we see that God, not Adam, speaks here and defines what marriage is for us. Man and woman, he says, one flesh holding fast, which is word of covenant commitment for life together. This was how God intended it in the beginning, and it tells us that this was good because they were naked and not ashamed. They didn't have guilt 
They didn't have shame. They didn't have brokenness and heartbreak that so many relationships can bring about. This is what God intended for marriage. And I would ask us, even as married folks, even as Christian married folks, does this picture... Does this picture describe our marriage of the joy of a man and a woman together complementing each other and overflowing in love and service together? Friends, we are called to be relational, whether it's wife and kids or whether it's just other brothers that we have around us. We're called to be relational. Fifth, humanity was created to work, created to work. I want you to see this. Let's get back into the heart of this passage in verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 2 and see this. We get a description of the garden. And I'm going to read this quickly. Look at this. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it's one that flowed around the whole land of Hivala, and there was, where there's gold, and the gold of the land is good. Bedellum and onyx stones are there. Name of the second river is Gahon, and it's one that watered around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river, the Euphrates, verse 15, is key. Sometimes you get so caught up, and you're seeing, you're going on this tour of the garden, and you miss verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. See it? God gave humanity work to do. This might be eye-opening for some of us, but work was not a part of the fall. We know as Christians that work comes, that, that there's a fall coming here in the next chapter that we'll look at next week, but work itself was not caused by the fall. Sure, some of your struggle with work is, right? The sweat of your brow and other things, some of the frustrations of your work... But work itself was a good thing created by God. And there are many in our world who want the reward of work without the reality of work. And work here isn't simply talking about a nine to five with paycheck and benefits. So that's part of it. That's not all of it. Moms who stay home with kids, hear me, you work very hard. I'm very glad I don't have to do that. (laughs) You work incredibly hard. Hard And your work is just as valuable as if your husband works and you stay home. Those are equally valuable work. In fact, I would want to say that a, that a mom with her kids is one of the most important roles of work that there is. And there's men and women here who've retired from a job. Let me say that the volunteering and mentoring you do, that's work. And all the fun that you get to have as a grandparent, that's work. Being a good grandma and grandpa or papa and mama, and and all of these things are a part of work. This text isn't condemning retirement. There's some people I hear that go, well, Christians should never retire. Well, you can definitely retire from a job, but I think it will have you think a little bit different about what the good life is. So many people dream of, I just can't wait until I can be done, and I can just sit on my butt all day and watch Netflix. That's what they want. And this text says is that you're simply not created for that. The text isn't telling us, it isn't saying that retirement's wrong, it's saying retreat is. 
reclusion is. Just whether, whether you, that you were created for an activity, for work, whether it's in a job, in your home, in the world. It may include a paycheck or it may not. But regardless, God created us to work in whatever fashion that might be. Students, hear me, your schooling that you're in right now is work. So don't think just because, well, I don't have a job. This doesn't count for me. No, you're, where you're spending all day, whether it's homeschool or at the public school or the private school, whatever you do, that is work and probably even harder work now because everybody's at home, right? Or at least schools are starting to go back. Many of you have been home for a while with that. Consider this, we were called to work, but this working and this keeping has something glorious underneath it. And this is the last point that we'll see, that these aren't just words of work, these are also words of worship. Humanity was created for worship. Humanity was created for worship. All over this passage, we see that God created all of life to be an act of worship. You can check this chart in your notes, and I'd encourage you to go home and you can compare some of these. I'm not going to walk through all of this chart for you, but the words to work and to keep are priestly words. These are words that, only, that, that were only ever used together elsewhere in the Bible to describe the work the priest did in the temple. Consider that the garden, there's two trees in the middle, and in God's temple there were two lampstands. In the middle of it. Notice how the garden is planted in the east. And all of God's temples were in the east. That later you'll see in Genesis 3. That God guarded the garden with flaming cherubim. And that was what the statues that marked the temple were. Were flaming cherubim. That in the middle of the garden. There was sort of this holy of holies. That the commandments of God dwelt in the center of the temple. And there in the center of the temple stood the law of God to Adam. Don't eat of this tree. There's tons of parallels here, but here's my point. The garden was created to be a sanctuary. was created to be sacred space. He was communicating, hey, Israelites, think about this space God created in the world as a temple. This was a temple. And this was where God intended his creation to dwell. All of it was meant to be done in God's presence, whether your job or your work or your marriage, even your very body. All of this was meant to be done in God's presence, with God's blessing, by God's expectation for your joy in him. All of these things were intended to point to something far greater than yourself, the glory and the worship of God. This is what you were created for. To be the image of God on earth and to reflect him and worship him in your marriage, your work, all of your life. And doesn't this now bring more significance to these classic words from Romans chapter 3 that if you've been in church at all, you've heard these before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some people go, well, sin, it's just falling short. I'm like, no, 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 no. When, when you see what Adam was created for, you see how far that falling short truly is. That Adam and Eve, when they ate this fruit, they, they, had, they had fallen short by directly disobeying God's commands and that we inherit from them sinful natures and follow in these same patterns as them. And we need someone to come who can reverse what happened in the fall and bring us back to this, don't we? 
We need someone to get us back here. And we need a second and better Adam. And the good news of Christianity, the gospel, all of this that the Bible is about is a story that that second Adam has come. That God so loved his image bearers, sinful and marred as we are, that he came to be like one of us. God took on flesh to dwell among us and to live a perfect life of worship and to do what the first Adam failed to do. We're going to open that up more next week. But in short, Jesus obeyed in every way that Adam failed. And in doing that, he set the trajectory of the world that was fallen back from sin and decay to life and restoration. Jesus came to live for us, to die on the cross in our place, to die and bear the curse of sin for us, and to resurrect from the dead forever conquering sin and death and hell. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus can forgive your sins. He can restore you back to reflecting the image of God and to continue throughout your life to conform you to God's image until one day he brings you home and finishes the project. Aren't we all works in in progress? Isn't it great to know that God's got a completion date out there for you? The project ain't just sitting there undone. He's got a date that it's going to be finished and you'll be fully conformed to the image of Jesus because the Garden of Eden... Is for all of us a longing. Every soul longs to stand in a place where we can be unashamed. And that longing is what we see here in Genesis 2. God and man in harmony. Man and woman in harmony. Humanity and creation in harmony together. Everyone is chasing Eden. Whether it's in our jobs, the relationships we foster. We are all wanting the good life. And friends, I tell you that those things can provide you a taste of this, but it cannot bring you home to Eden. Only Jesus can. But the garden, even the garden was just a start, right? Adam was given a job to do. He said, fill the earth with my glory, and God is going to get that done. Even if Adam failed... He has sent Jesus to one day the earth is going to be recreated and filled with God's glory. And we await the glorious promise of Habakkuk 2.14. A promise that the second Adam is going to complete the mission that the first Adam failed to do. We long for the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. We pray and long for that day, and God can begin that work in transforming you today. If you don't know Him, you can come to Him through faith and repentance, and He'll transform you, forgive you of your sins, and set you on a trajectory back to a new creation that God is creating. And for us as Christians, I hope this is a a recalibration, a, a reconforming of our minds to see what is most important in our life, what is supreme and to pursue after that together as a body. Let's pray. Father God, you're good. We're so thankful for your goodness and kindness toward us in Jesus. I'm thankful that you are restoring this world back to what was lost but better, that you promised to resurrect us and to resurrect this world. And we're thankful that because you have gone through the waters of death and came out the other side as the resurrected king, that those who follow you, though we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, 
We will not fear for you're with us and you comfort us. And we're following the same path as believers that you are through the grave, but into resurrection and newness of life. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that you draw them to yourself. That if there's a believer here who needs encouragement, that they would be encouraged by what we heard today. And that, Lord, if there's somebody who's living out here particularly without community, by themselves, that you would bring them to to be here with this community in a time when we need to care for both our bodies and our souls. Lord, be honored in all that we do together. And I ask and I pray this on Jesus' name. Amen.